0: Many times this year, we focused our program on discussing long COVID, who is affected, what it is, where research studies are underway to sort out the mystery and how to treat it. Our guests brought great insight to our conversations about the lingering effect of COVID that continue for months and years after the acute phase.
1: As we look back on 2023, we bring you highlights from these interviews. It's a fascinating recap of a complex and evolving medical story. This is Conversations on Healthcare.
0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. You know, there are three key reasons why this programming devoted so much time to long COVID in 2023. First, it really fits our mission that's focused on healthcare innovation and policymakers Figuring out long COVID is indeed taxing to researchers and it's requiring policymakers to respond in kind with financial resources. Second, there did not seem to be a lot of consistent coverage of long COVID in other media outlets. And third of all, the interest from all of you, our audience, was very strong.
1: And we know there are people out there really suffering Mm -hmm. from long COVID and we want to pay attention. There were new developments in the long COVID story throughout the year. We'll get to a big one in a bit. But we start with a review of the answers that we heard when we asked guests to define long COVID. We start with Yale University researcher Akiko Iwasaki.
2: Long COVID um, is definitely a condition that is heterogeneous and variable. And it's difficult to pinpoint because we don't have a biomarker but uh, it's essentially a disease that happens after the acute phase of COVID that lingers over four weeks um, from the starting of the acute phase. And in some people it's lasting for over two years now. Um, And it contains multiple different symptoms, Um, over 200 different symptoms have been reported involving pretty much every organ system. Um, And as I said, it's a heterogeneous disease that uh, that requires more investigation.
0: Margaret, we had Dr. Leora Horowitz, uh, one of the leaders of the National Institute of Health Study of Long COVID. And Dr. Horowitz is also the director for the Center for Healthcare Innovation and Delivery Science at NYU Lagone Health. Uh, An important part of her work has been getting to working definition of long COVID. So we're all on the same song sheet. In fact, she's been instrumental in creating the 12 Symptom Scoring System.
3: We have over uh, uh, 14,000 patients in the study right now, Um, and so what we have been doing is asking them questions every three months about tons of different symptoms, asking, do you have this? Do you have that? Do you have this other thing? Uh, In fact, we asked about 37 different symptoms uh, that people might experience, and what we did in this first look at the first 10,000 of these patients, these participants, is we looked to see which of those symptoms are more commonly present long-term in people who did have COVID versus people who didn't have COVID? Because remember lots of people have symptoms of all types and it's not necessarily related to COVID. So what we were looking for are symptoms that were more prevalent in people with COVID than in people without. And it turns out just about every symptom is more common in people who had COVID than people who didn't. And, And people have all these different kinds of symptoms and it's not so surprising because we took this list of, of 37 symptoms from patients themselves. So we we, we started with a list that, that we knew that people were experiencing. So that's kind of cumbersome to manage and to deal with. It's a, that's a lot of things to try to keep track of. So what we did is we did a lot of math to try to figure out which of those symptoms were most helpful, most different between people with COVID and without. And that got us down to 12. But I want to be clear that the the people who had those symptoms, they also had all the other ones too. So it's not that those are the only symptoms that people get. They're not even the most common necessarily, but they are the the ones that help us most distinguish between people who had COVID and who didn't. And then we looked to see which of those were especially different, which of those were a little bit less different. And we gave points to them depending on how different they were. So for example, loss of smell and taste was very uncommon in people who didn't have COVID and really quite common in those who did. So that gets a lot of points. Something like fatigue is also very common in people who uh, had COVID, but also kind of common in people who didn't. Many people are fatigued. So that gets you only one point. So um, so we gave points to each of these symptoms and it so happens that the number 12 comes up again. What we found was that the a total number of points of 12, 12 points or more, made it very likely that that was a person who had COVID in the past, probably as a person who had long COVID, whereas very few people who didn't have COVID had 12 points or more of of symptoms. That doesn't mean they had all 12 symptoms, just means they had 12 points worth of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so we used that as 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 a cutoff to say above here is very probable that this is a person with long COVID. Again, it doesn't mean that someone who has fewer points doesn't have long COVID. Certainly, there are people who have long-term symptoms from COVID that don't quite have 12 points, but above that, we're really, we feel pretty confident that that's somebody with it, and that means we can do science on those people. We can study those folk and try to understand what's going on in the body, what is happening
1: over time, are they getting better? We also asked Dr. Lisa Sanders to explain the scope of the problem. She's the director of the Yale New Haven Long COVID Multidisciplinary Care Center. She also writes the diagnosis column for the New York Times.
4: We don't see patients until three months after their infection, because we know that symptoms that occur within that period often are gone by three months. And that just, that seems reasonable. But even for people who have symptoms that last longer than three months, the people that I see, there are some studies that show that the vast majority of these people feel better. I don't say well, but feel better within a year. Um, So I think that the prognosis for this, this is pretty good. On the other hand, a year is a really long time. To suffer, and there are lots of patients that I see who have been suffering for much longer than that. Most people get better within a year. Most, not all. I would say that fatigue is hugely common. Hugely. I mean, almost no one comes to us who doesn't complain of fatigue. Um, and it can be, it can be really a debilitating fatigue. Like it's hard to get, you know, uh, out of the house. That kind of fatigue. Sometimes it's hard to get out of bed. That kind of fatigue. So fatigue is is a a common problem. Um, Brain fog or some sort of cognitive change that people notice is also a very common symptom. Um, most, Most patients who come with cognitive changes talk about word finding difficulty, and also problems with attention or concentration. It's hard for them to attend the way they used to. And in fact, that probably has a lot to do with the other most common complaint, which is short-term memory problems. Um, If you don't, if you're not attending uh, to the situation, it's very hard to remember. There might also be another component of, of the memory loss, but I think that, or the memory difficulties, but I think that the attention plays an important role. So that's, so fatigue, brain fog, those are probably the two most uh, common problems I see. But then there are a whole bunch of other problems. You know, people feel short of breath. People have chest pain. People get dizzy when they stand up. People talk about tachycardia. So we, we try to figure out what to do with each of these problems, try to sort of face them as they are. Because at this point, there is no... Treatment for long COVID. You know, based on the definition, COVID. You know, the definition of long COVID is you had COVID and then you felt bad. That's a pretty broad definition. Um, and when you see patients with long COVID, they have different manifestations. Like some people are suffering from something that COVID did to them at the time that they had it. You know, this is people with shortness of breath. Um, often have some problems, you know, some problems caused by COVID to their lungs. Other people have disorders that are a little bit less easily attributed to instant damage from the COVID itself. Maybe it's their immune system is different, or maybe it's an autoimmune disease, or maybe it's just uh, uh, some other kind of problem. I mean, so they're like six six, people say that there are six different kinds of long COVID, and when you have something like that, there's not going to be, I don't think, a single cure.
0: We really enjoy our, uh, reading her columns, Margaret. Uh, in our interviews, we consistently asked one question, how do you address skeptics who think people saying they have long COVID are making it up in some form or fashion? At Aspen Ideas Health in June, we spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci, the former chief medical advisor to President Biden, who explained we still do not understand the pathogenesis of long COVID.
5: It's a real phenomenon. Uh, It varies in its severity from fatigue based on exercise to incapacity to be able to do something and a variety of other signs and symptoms autonomic nervous system symptoms, unexplained tachycardia, temperature dysregulation, sleep disturbances, brain fog or inability to concentrate. It varies, I mean, for some people who have all of that and are really, really their lives have been really negatively impacted to those who get a degree of fatigue that lasts for four or five, six months and then gets better. So it's a wide spectrum. The problem is we don't know what the underlying pathogenesis is. Is mm-hmm. that an, a triggering of, a, of an aberrant immune response that you can't turn off? No. Is it residual viral particles that are not replication-competent but are still there? We don't know what the answer to mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm.
1: Dr. Sanders at Yale New Haven explained how she deals with those who think long COVID is in people's heads, that it's somehow made up
4: educate people i you know i uh i don't know about educating people i educate the patients who come in and their family members and uh you know when i speak in public i about long covid i certainly try to persuade people that it's real but you know not having a blood test or some sort of biomarker doesn't mean the disease doesn't exist there are lots of there are lots of diseases that we diagnose based on clinical symptoms so that's i that's you know that's kind of a bogus claim and you have to understand that tests are questions and if you've ever played 20 questions you know it's possible that your first 20 the answer to your first 20 questions will be no and that's where we are with long covid the first 20 questions we ask for many people the answer is no uh it's not that but tests are <laughs> there's no there's no test that says, wow, are you okay? The tests don't work like that. Um, so it has to be a very specific question. And we don't even know what the question is for many of these symptoms.
0: Well, we know from so many of our patients, it's cer- certainly not made up, Margaret. We also heard from Yale's Akiko Iwazaki on this issue.
2: I'm just surprised to see that there are some skeptics that are still doubting the validity of this disease. Um, So we've done a lot of uh, immune profiling in people with COVID, uh, long COVID versus those who recovered. And we're seeing uh, distinct features of immune responses that are not found in the control groups. And so just by immunological features alone, we can uh, distinguish people with long COVID. And um, it's very difficult to just imagine that.
1: Patient advocate Fiona Lowenstein, editor of the Long COVID Survival Guide, explained why she thought there were so many hurdles for getting clinicians to believe their patients.
6: You know, none of these issues are are new, right? Um, Inequal in access to healthcare has been an issue, certainly um, in in our society and in our country for a long time. And so, I think it's important to understand that these structural barriers were very much here before the pandemic, but were of course exacerbated by the healthcare overwhelm that occurred and continues to occur on a seasonal basis when we have these huge surges, you know, case surges for now not just COVID, but of course we're seeing for you know flu and RSV as well. Um, and so the the stories in our books, you know, we, we, we have stories from um, patients who uh, came from communities that were disproportionately impacted by those high, high caseloads of acute COVID, right? Um, we have a patient in our book who writes about getting sick in the first wave um, in an urban black community in Baltimore and what it was like to try and fight for care continually. Um, you know, we have a story from a Latina woman in Los Angeles, the same thing, trying to get doctors to take her seriously. And so I think, you know, For medical providers and for those treating long COVID, it's important to understand that some of those patients who don't have that initial COVID-19 diagnostic test or may not have that uh, record of being treated for post-COVID symptoms um, early on in their illness experience, may have been facing some of those structural barriers. You know, medical racism, um, uh, medical sexism. These are, these are very real barriers that existed prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, but have definitely been ac- exacerbated by just the level of healthcare need that, that, we're, uh, s- that is going on right now.
0: However, a short time later, there was a breakthrough. In September, scientists reported they had found distinct differences in the blood of people with long COVID. This is seen as the first key step in the development of a test to diagnose the illness that was such great news for the estimated 65 million or more people around the world that still are coping with long COVID. What does the treatment look like for them? Well, Dr. Greg Venishka leads Mayo Clinic's COVID Activity Rehabilitation Program,
7: and he explained how it works. So, the loss of taste and smell, that's something that we have all heard about during the acute infection. But for some folks, it does last for quite a bit of time, several months. And that can be quite a miserable few months. If you imagine you can't taste or smell anything, or sometimes things that normally taste and smell good taste bad. The nerves that are involved in taste and smell, they have this ability to regrow. It's called neuroplasticity, but essentially they can be regrown. And by using uh, odors to stimulate the nerves that are involved in smell we believe that we can help them regrow properly and form the proper connections that bring back normal taste and smell there's also some in some additional research that using things like olfactory retraining can help rewire some of the deeper parts of the brain to actually help improve cognition mm-hmm. the process is pretty straightforward we have individuals smell four different odors uh, twice a day for 30 seconds at a time. And we had them do that quite frequently for, uh, sorry, quite a prolonged period of time, about three months. And patients will notice an effect, it's subtle, but a subtle effect of uh, getting better faster versus later.
0: Have you uh, done, are you planning to publish on this or have you published on this?
7: Uh, People are ahead of us on that. One thing I will say is that we try to stick to only the research driven uh, interactions or interventions here at Mayo. So that uh, comes from after seeing some similar results in the research.
0: Mm
1: But very important to get out into the primary care field where people may not be uh, as familiar with the literature. So thank you so much for sharing that. That's certainly a, a low-risk intervention uh, for Absolutely. people. Absolutely.
7: very easy
1: I, uh, I, I noticed another uh, piece of advice that's been attributed uh, to you is that long COVID patients should focus on resistance activity instead of things like walking and cycling. Uh, counterintuitive somewhat, you know, my answer to almost everything is take a brisk walk. You'll probably feel better. Uh, but in this case, you're saying they shouldn't do activities that elevate the heart rate. Why is that?
7: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so first of all, I'm a big proponent of exercise a- in healthcare. And so uh, I'm never gonna say the exercise is a bad thing, but because of what we see in long COVID, we think that pushing the body too hard, uh, and the too hard part is the key here, can actually make things worse. Because of long COVID and its inflammatory changes that we think underlie it, individuals with this condition, they don't have the normal uh, physical responses to activity and uh, exercise. So, for example, most of us, when we start to go for a brisk walk or do some more vigorous exercise, there's that warm-up period where our body adapts, and it goes from being a horrible experience to being something enjoyable. That change doesn't seem to happen well in individuals with long COVID. And it's kind of similar to some of the problems that we see with things like postural tachycardia syndrome or POTS. So the body is just not adapting to that. So in individuals with long COVID, if they try to push themselves too hard and just grit their teeth and exercise their way fully back to recovery in a sort of no pain, no gain attitude, their bodies just crash. And they experience Mm -hmm. increased inflammation, And then their symptoms get worse for hours or days. That leads them to rest and these are further deconditioning. And then they get stuck into this vicious cycle. So it's not so much about not doing activity or exercising, it's just about a slower pace to that activity. Uh, Interestingly, in those folks who have conditions like postural tachycardia syndrome or things like chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, they are able to tolerate more recumbent resistance exercises before they can get to tolerating things like cardiovascular exercise. So that's why we have people start with things like the recumbent cycling or rowing. Once the musculature regains its strength some in tone, we think the body is better able to push around blood flow during activity, and then they're able to transition to the cardiovascular exercise.
0: He also gave us an overview of research that's occurring.
7: You know, I think there's two phases of research that's going on right now that are both important. One is what's really underlying the condition of long COVID on a chemical level. What is the process that's going on? We still don't understand that. Or the process that's going on for potentially similar or the same conditions like chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. So I'm always on the lookout for anything that could indicate, okay, there is a new inflammatory marker that may underline some of these changes. So there has been some good research, such as the genetic research that came out recently involving the uh, FOXP4, I believe it mm-hmm. was, gene, and how that may be more present and somehow related to long COVID. I think if we can get the answers to what's going on on an underlying level, that will open up a whole new doorway of therapeutics that we could use and be able to focus where our treatments are. The other thing that I'm looking out for is exactly that randomized clinical trials, right. well-designed about treatments. And right now there's hardly anything out there um, in that level. There are some anecdotal pieces as well as some smaller observational studies that have given us some hints on things that we can use, but we're still quite lacking in this area. Yeah, I think it's, she has I...
0: 15,000 people in her, in her uh, study, which is probably, closer to the size that we'd
7: like to see. Yes, exactly. It's like, for example, we have a lot of people who are wanting to use Paxlovid for the treatment of long COVID. And I've had plenty of patients with long COVID who took Paxlovid during the acute infection or even afterwards. But I'm not ready to say that Paxlovid doesn't work. What we need are some of the large numbers, like the studies that are being done by the NIH, including here at Mayo. We're partnering uh-huh. with them on that. That's the kind of information we need before we can say yay or nay. Uh, We had Dr. Uh, Ashish Jha on the
0: show yesterday, and uh, uh, former uh, Biden uh, COVID czar, there if you will, and uh, now back at uh, Brown as the dean, who, who I think Margaret was really pushing COVID, pushing Paxlovid as sort of a treatment for those over fifty. Uh, But as you say, there's probably more data out there. As a preventive, not for long COVID. Right. No, as a preventive, for sure. I was just wondering about the level of financial support that you think that's out there. I'm wondering if uh, too much of uh, this, uh, it's now in the rearview mirror, is influencing the financial support that's really needed to do these very detailed uh, clinical trials. What, What are you feeling or seeing out there?
7: Yeah, this is probably my greatest fear when it comes to uh, long COVID. You know, we've had post-viral conditions for the longest time, sure. since all the way back to mm-hmm. the Spanish flu, even. Right. Right. So influenza, Lyme disease, but there hasn't been a lot of emphasis on this because it just hasn't been raised to a good level of awareness. When the pandemic came, that all changed, and now everyone was focused on long COVID, and there was lots of support for research and such, but... These things take time, the pandemic's behind us. We're seeing less numbers of long COVID, but it's not going away. So I am worried that the financial support is going to run out uh, behind trying to figure out these really serious conditions that are affecting millions of people out there. But fortunately, by having discussions like we are right now, we can keep this on the forefront yeah. and keep the science moving are, forward. Are you yeah, seeing Dr. anything ben- maybe internationally? Uh, you know, we've been
0: keeping an eye on Uh, the UK and other places, uh, anywhere that you and your team are are looking at for, if it's not happening in the States, where where other people are taking a leadership role here?
5: Mm
7: -hmm. I would say the UK has been really paramount in uh, a lot of the early research. And we do have some connections there as well through Mayo Clinic. And so if we were to to branch out across the world, which we hope to do, uh, that would be my number one choice. We've also Mm -hmm. had some good success working with our folks down in Australia yeah that's right,
1: Dr. Van, the uh, concern uh, among so many others is around health disparities also with uh, with long Covid. And you know, maybe you could uh, comment on this as a, a starting point of uh, health inequity and health disparities, inflammatory diseases, chronic illnesses, disparities in access to health care. Based on what you're seeing, do people present differently based on uh, factors like race and ethnicity as well as age? We're hearing young women may be more likely affected, which, you know, is not as, uh, you know, maybe is uh, apparent to some. Tell tell us about that. And how do we how do we address that? Part of it is the research and making sure those studies are large enough, obviously, like the uh, All of Us project nationally. But could you comment on that a bit?
7: Yeah, thank you so much for asking about that. I think that's something that's really quite overlooked, this disparity part about long COVID, it's something I'm really passionate about. You know, long COVID affects everybody across the population, right? We, this has got to be the case. Here at Mayo Clinic, what we have noticed is that certain individuals are able to access care uh, to, for long COVID, and that's the same across other institutions. The person that typically can go to a specialty clinic for long COVID, they've got support for things like both financial support, paid time off, long-term disability through an employer, all those kinds of means for travel and such. That's not something that's available across the board to all individuals. For example, we have not seen in the research or in our clinical practice individuals who work more on the forefront of uh, our industries. Let's say uh, farmers or agricultural workers or line workers from automated factory. We know those individuals are must be out there and suffering symptoms, but. We're not seeing them get care. Uh, health disparities, of course, they existed long before COVID came around, but if anything, the pandemic and the long COVID phenomenon has exacerbated that disparity. So we are actively working with some of our local groups, uh, community engagement boards and so forth to see if we can improve that, uh, reach out and improve that disparity. One area that we are particularly uh, worried about are individuals who are already living with disabilities. It's very difficult for them to uh, get care already. How are they doing now if they have long COVID?
1: Patient advocate Fiona Lowenstein shared great advice for anyone who's still dealing with long COVID.
6: Well, the first thing I would say is if you are experiencing or think you're experiencing long COVID symptoms, track your symptoms um, and also track your daily activities. Um, I think in the support groups, we found it really helpful uh, to look at not only when you're experiencing symptoms, but you know, what might have predated that symptom because a hallmark symptom of long COVID tends to be something we call post-exertional symptom exacerbation, the worsening of symptoms following a period of physical, mental, or emotional exertion. So that can be quite helpful as a starting point. Um, there's a lot of great advice in this guide. I, I would say it's a it's a good place to start. Um, Dr. Iwasaki wrote a beautiful afterword as well, kind of sharing with the reader what the future of research for this disease might look like. Right. Um, but there's also a piece of advice that stands out to me right now from uh, Dr. Donna Kim Murphy, who is herself um, both a provider and a long COVID patient. Um, She writes that your your provider should be your partner in your long COVID journey, and that if you are not finding that kind of, you know, intellectual curiosity and partnership in your provider, um, you deserve to find that, and and you should, you know, pursue that um, by whatever means necessary. Obviously, everyone, you know, we all have limitations in terms of time and money and access, um, but I think it's important for patients to feel empowered and know that that is what that they deserve, and that there are providers out there, you know, like Dr. David Petrino and and others who are part of this book, who are really committed to to forging that relationship with patients. Um, there is not a patient doctor divide on this issue. Um, a lot of us are really working together, researchers, providers, Great. patients, to, to solve this collectively. Um, and so we're very grateful to to folks like Dr. Iwasaki um, and and Dr. David Petrino and others who are working with us to do just that.
0: Early in 2024 will mark the fourth anniversary of the first COVID case in the United States. As the American Medical Association points out, long COVID is still an enigma. AMA writes, the mystery of long COVID reminds us of the virus's capacity to leave a lasting imprint, prompting a paradigm shift in how we perceive and manage the aftermath of COVID-19.
1: As we get ready to start a new year, We pledge to you to stay on top of long COVID developments and invite the leading clinicians and researchers to join us. Be sure to go online to chcradio.com, sign up for email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about the program. Happy Holidays and Happy New Year. Copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.